Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Knope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. The Secretary of State, Section 2 says, shall keep a fair record of the official acts of the Legislative Assembly and Executive Branch. As of May 8th, the person running the Secretary of State's office is Cheryl Myers. Cheryl Myers was Shamia Fagan's deputy. A lot of the Republicans are basically saying, in order to restore trust, you need to fire all of the main staff that were at the top of this situation if they were involved or knew. This will be the most consequential election of modern history, and any appointee must be solely focused on restoring Americans' faith in our electoral system. Oregon law imposes several ethical obligations on state and local public officials. State law also regulates and requires reporting by lobbyists. Harang Long PC's lawyers work with public officials and lobbyists who need advice on how to comply with government ethics rules. We also represent clients before the Oregon Government Ethics Commission when they are accused of violating those rules. Our deep experience with government ethics helps us evaluate issues efficiently and offer practical advice in what can often be contentious and politically charged circumstances. To learn more about Harang Long's government ethics practice, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. All right. This week on the podcast, Reagan and I are going to talk about a very hot topic in Oregon politics and something, one of the reasons we want to talk about this is because there have been a lot of really bad takes and some information that isn't even true that's been circulating in Oregon political circles about the Secretary of State vacancy and appointment. So we're going to call out the fake news. And call out the, the real reason I think it's important, Ben, that we're having this conversation is because this is the conversation that happens at the end of like every meeting in Salem that's taking place right now. Is like, so who do you think is going to be the next Secretary of State? Like. That's why I think I want to let listeners in on this topic, because it's the topic everybody is talking about. Everybody's talking about it. Journalists are writing about it. People are tweeting about it. Lots of speculation. But there's some factual inaccuracies, not so much in the reporting that I've seen, but in how people are talking about it that I think will be useful for folks. But before we jump into the vacancy and potential candidates and all that stuff, Reagan, what does the Oregon Secretary of State do and why does this position even matter? Well, Ben, I did research and <laughs> did not know Article before. 6 of the Oregon Constitution creates the administrative department. And I believe that's now just called the Secretary of State's office, essentially. And Section 1 is the election of the secretary, the treasurer, and then the duties of the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State, Section 2 says, shall keep a fair record of the official acts of the legislative assembly and executive branch. So that's bills passed and executive orders and possibly administrative rules too. And shall when required lay the same in all matters relative thereto before either chamber of the legislative assembly, the secretary of state shall be by virtue of holding the office auditor of public accounts and shall perform such other duties as shall be assigned to the secretary of state by law. And then I'm um, just going to the secretary of state's website. They talk about the role of the secretary of state. She's the chief elections officer. And we need to talk about what that means. But broadly, that does mean she helps all the other counties administer elections. She administers no elections herself. If you want to go back to um, irony, our interview with Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, she explains that. 
Mm-hmm. She's the chief auditor. That's also important for what we're about to talk about. And then she oversees state archives, which is an archive of all the important documents and all those laws and all of those executive orders in the history of the governors. And then she runs the corporation division. When you register your business in Oregon, you get a little piece of paper from Secretary of State for 100 bucks that says you have a corporation. So those are all the technical things that the Secretary of State does. But I think on a broader, sort of more zoomed out level, it's a statewide elected official. In this case, it'll be someone appointed to a statewide office. They're relatively high profile. They speak to the newspapers and weigh in. And they kind of, in through the audits division, I think in particular, they impact the discourse. They impact the dialogue that's happening in the state, as we saw with Secretary of State Shamia Fagan before she resigned. Ben, uh, I do think how famous the Secretary of State is is kind of up to them. Like some of them have been historically very quiet and not said much. I think it's been more high profile recently, it feels like. Like the more recent, because of all of the the turmoil with like the appointments and the people becoming governor and whatnot, like I think to me, Secretary of State went from being something I did not pay any attention to to something that we pay a lot more attention to just because the Kitsopper Brown situation actually brought that line of succession into view. Prior to that, I don't really remember hearing very much about the Secretary of State. So I feel like that's a more recent bias phenomenon, but you're probably right. So, and what I will say is, I believe Tom McCall was Secretary of State for a couple of years. Mark Hatfield was Secretary of State. Barbara Roberts was Secretary of State. So back in the day, Secretary of State was a very prominent position that people sort of jumped to higher office from. That did decline for, I think, a couple decades. And then obviously, Kate Brown became governor. We should note for listeners here, very importantly, this appointment Let's say Tina Kotek appoints someone to office and then Kotek herself resigns or takes another office. The person who Kotek appointed to Secretary of State would not become governor. Because uh, they've it, not stood for election. Yes, it reverts to the state treasurer, assuming it's Tobias Reed in office. And then after that, I believe it goes Senate president and then Speaker of the House. But maybe Sounds right. you can fact check that, Reagan. Okay, so let's get into the vacancy. Let's get into the impact and then the appointment process. So We won't talk about the scandal that forced Secretary of State Shamia Fagan out of office. That has been well covered in the media. She resigned officially on May 8th. As of May 8th, the person running the Secretary of State's office is Cheryl Myers. Cheryl Myers was Shamia Fagan's deputy. She's someone that Shamia Fagan appointed to that role, and she automatically became acting secretary when Fagan resigned. This is the same thing that happened when Dennis Richardson passed away. Leslie Cummings, who was his deputy, was the acting secretary of state. And that looks like for about a month. And so importantly, this person is not chosen by the governor to do this. This is just this is the acting person who's just basically assuming the duties of the role until the governor's appointment takes place. Also, something we wanted to reference because this just Cheryl Myers was just in the paper saying this. Myers seems to be distancing herself from Fagan. Or perhaps like I was trying to see why she would, I'll read the quote and then Reagan, I'm curious your thoughts. This is a direct quote from Cheryl Myers to Willamette Week. Senior staff advised Secretary Fagan against working with LaModa from the very beginning. We advised her against taking the contract. And when she recused herself, we advised her to disclose the relationship publicly. We again advised her to quit the contract when we learned about the company's tax and legal troubles from Willamette Week. Unfortunately, the secretary never presented this as a question. The secretary had predetermined she would take the contract from the moment she brought the issue to our attention. Our advice was ignored. The reason we bring that up is not to sort of litigate the scandal itself, but I think it's important because 
that to me seems like an attempt from Cheryl Myers to create some distance between the professional staff and Secretary Fagan. And probably, I think, as a means to try to restore some trust into the agency and the agency staff that remains in the office. So, Reagan, I don't know if you have any comments on the sort of acting secretary dynamic. I think the acting secretary is attempting to do that. And I think the primary reason you would kind of go make these quotes, Ben, I don't know that we have any way of knowing if like how forcefully, how much she advised, how forcefully they were. They're trying to make it seem very forceful. I think the reason you do this is to try to avoid the next person who comes in from cleaning house. Because like a lot of the Republicans are basically saying in order to restore trust, you need to fire all of the main staff that were at the top of this situation if they were involved or knew. And specifically, I think there's a lot of concern about the head auditor because, you know, he's out there saying that they didn't compromise their values and that the DOJ investigation will find them to be in compliance with government rules. I think that might be true. I think a lot of it has to do with perception, though. Okay, so we'll move into where we are now and how the appointment process works. So first, there's a few rules that guide this process that, again, this is where there have been some factual misunderstandings that I've heard. First and foremost, this is a governor appointment. There is no Senate confirmation. There's no advice and consent from the legislature. Anything that the governor does to solicit feedback or talk to partner groups or consult with the legislature is totally her discretion. Ultimately, she will be the one who determines who is in this position. The rules for the person are they must be a Democrat because Shamia Fagan was elected as a Democrat. Even if Tina Kotek wanted to, she could not appoint an independent. She could not appoint a Republican. It must be a Democrat. The replacement will serve until the end of Fagan's term because the vacancy occurred over halfway through her term. If it would have occurred in the first half of her term, they would have had to stand for election at the two-year mark. There is zero timeline dictating this. The governor has no like, you have to do it within a month or two months, totally up to her when she makes the appointment. And this isn't so much a rule as a reality. The person who the governor appoints has to be willing to leave their current job and make $77,000 a year. And my assumption is because of the circumstances that brought us here, that person will probably be unable to do any outside work during the course of their time in that office. Technically legal, but because it was the root of the scandal, I just can't imagine that would be true. So a lot of people, we're gonna talk about some names in just a moment, I think, and these are names that have been in the press, and I think half those names or a quarter of those names take themselves out of the running because of that dynamic and the professional implications of the role. Reagan, anything you wanted to add to the kind of like rules of the road that are guiding the governor's decision-making? Well, Ben, and I, one of the things that is an interesting dynamic that you watch in the media is the people who give like unsolicited feedback. There's going to be, we're going to cover some unsolicited feedback. One of them that I thought was super interesting was Melissa Hagens, who's the political director of the SCIU Local 49, and OPB called her a key supporter of Kotech, probably true, said no Democratic state senator is a viable option. That's a very definitive statement from an outside group who doesn't theoretically get a decision making say on here. And so that's what I'm watching for is like, after the governor makes the appointment, paying attention to these key things that were said in the media, did these people actually have input? We won't know, but I'm kind of going to make some assumptions on who she took the input from based on who was selected and what was kind of said in the media. What I will say about the the quote is no Democratic state senator is a viable option to me as a Democrat seems obviously true for because the dynamics in the Senate. Although I will say I only think it's true during until yes. constitutional signing die on June 25th. 
because right now, because of a, one state senator being out with health issues, there's literally no margin for error for passing any bills, or at least there wasn't while the Senate was still functioning. We won't go into that topic this evening, but that's what I think that means. So, But Ben, is- I think that that matters because it's interesting that SEIU is the one that was giving that quote to OPB instead of the Democratic Party of Oregon or the majority leader in for Senate Democrats. That's what I think is interesting about that. But I see your point. So- there's two potential paths that Governor Kotek could go down. Potential path number one is the approach taken by Governor Brown, which is you appoint a placeholder. And by placeholder, we mean someone who is not going to run for election to the office. They're just going to see through the final two years of the term. The other approach is obviously to appoint someone who'd run and seek the office themselves. Governor Brown weighed in pretty forcefully, I'll say, in the media. This is a quote from OPB from Kate Brown. Quote, Governor Kotek should follow the standard I set and appoint someone who will not put their personal political interests ahead of the administration of the 2024 presidential election, Brown said. This will be the most consequential election of modern history, and any appointee must be solely focused on restoring Americans' faith in our electoral system and not on their own election to the secretary's office. So, Reagan, I would love to hear your analysis on the two potential paths, placeholder versus seeking the office, and the comment from former Governor Brown. Well, Ben, as you know, every upcoming election is the most important in modern (laughs) history. I think that's very funny in this quote because it just stays consistent with everything we hear. The past election didn't matter as much as the one that's coming. Also, I think I don't think it's necessarily fair to any placeholder or non-placeholder candidate to say that they can't administer an election and stand for election. I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. I understand why she's saying that in this context, but I just don't, I don't think that. It does. If you don't understand, if you haven't listened to the Shamia Fagan episode of our podcast, you could understand why someone would think, what? The secretary of state is in charge of the elections and they could be on the ballot. But that is not at all how it works. Like the secretary of state is not counting any votes in this state. Her office is not counting votes in the state. That's all done locally. But perception-wise, having the chief elections officer on the ballot that they're technically overseeing, I think, is what former Governor Brown's alluding to. Well, that's the other thing, too, with that is like that's more applicable to someone running for county clerk while administering the elections mm-hmm. in their own county. And there's a lot of drama about that. Candidates from both political parties, some choose to put their names on all the mail that goes out from the secretary of state, including or from county clerks, including ballots. And some opposing candidates for a county clerk think that that may not be fair. And so, I mean, I think the thing that she's saying here, I think, while maybe technically true, isn't as true for this position. In terms of the options, I think placeholder is interesting because I think I think it's kind of a feel good thing in a lot of ways where everyone's like, oh, it's just a placeholder. And so we get an open seat contest for the secretary of state's office. Everybody gets the best chance to put their foot forward and it makes people feel good. I think the downside of the placeholder is actually... Something that like I don't I don't really want to agree with Governor Kotek, but I'm going to, which is the goal right now is to restore trust in the secretary of state's office. And if you put a placeholder in there, that person can restore some trust, but then that person leaves and someone new takes over. And I think that that transition is going to lead to more mistrust if they let people go after somebody was good as a caretaker, even though it might just be somebody new bringing their own people in. I think a placeholder may actually add some more challenges here. And then in terms of a permanent pick, you are picking somebody who does get to stay in office and has an incentive to do better, I think. Shockingly fair and balanced approach from Reagan Knope. 
I'm um, nothing if not Fox News, Ben. <laughs> so this is a quote from Tina Kotek about how she's thinking of, there's a lot of, you know, after this Governor Brown quote came out, everyone was wondering like, oh, wow, maybe she's going to have to commit to appointing a placeholder. Not so. This is a quote from Kotek. I want to make sure that whoever takes that job, that they understand that one of their primary goals is to restore confidence in the Secretary of State's office, Kotek said in a meeting with reporters. That is my primary goal, not whether they want the job in the future. Uh, she went on to say, I haven't talked to anyone yet, and I have no list. I'm going to ask you about the next segment in terms of names, because you're a Democrat, so you know more. But first, I want to call BS. I don't think so. Ben, I think that remember when Dick Cheney ran the search committee <laughs> for vice president and then he became the vice presidential pick? Yes. My guess is in all those meetings, he did not walk in and he was like, do you want to be the vice president? He was like, so what would happen if we offered you the vice president? I think that Governor Kotek has had many conversations with many people. I don't think she's offered any of them secretary of state. And no, she probably doesn't have a list. But saying that she hasn't talked to anyone yet seems unlikely to me. Very I, unlikely. I don't, I actually totally disagree with you on that. I bet she's talked to a lot of people about the secretary, about who might be appointed or what people are looking for in the job. But I actually do take her out of word that she probably has not called anyone and said, you know, are you interested? Would you do this? Like it did seem, I mean, she made very clear a couple of weeks ago when this all happened, I'm not going to do anything until after the May local election. So there was no urgency from her to do it. Also, like the people who she may have called, she knows all these people personally. She has a relationship with all of them. So I actually doubt that she talked to anyone. I, it's from the OPB article. It seemed like the way she described it was the first phase for her was what do we need in a secretary of state? What qualities do we need, et cetera, et cetera. And now she's transitioning into the like vetting can. I bet, frankly, that's what happens this week. It's the first full week after the local election. And now yeah. people get start getting phone calls. Okay, so let's talk about people. So we've assembled a list. We've tried to curate as many of the names as we could find referenced in newspaper articles or tweets or whatever, and then added a couple of our own just for fun. We've got a placeholder list that I'll read first, and then we've got a non-placeholder list. These are people who would likely... Ben, can I read these for you? And then I have I want your reaction as I read each one. <laughs> or do you want me to read the whole list and then you react? Let's do just the one <clears throat> list at a time. And then, okay. yeah, we'll go from there. All right. So we have former state representative Peter Buckley as a placeholder. These are placeholders. Yes. Current and recently confirmed DAS director Barry Leslie, the acting secretary of state Cheryl Myers. You've got former placeholder secretary of state Gene Atkins, former state senator Richard Devlin, and former governor and former secretary of state Kate Brown. Okay. So first things first, I do not believe anyone on that list is going to be appointed secretary of state. We didn't talk about this before, but one way to read Kotek's quote where she's saying, I'm not, I don't care if they're a placeholder or not, maybe they will be, maybe they won't be, is like, of course they won't be a placeholder. It'll be someone who runs. I tend to think that's what's going to happen. I think that's what, she, that's what I would do, I think, is appoint someone who would run. Some of the people on that list might want to run, potentially. Cheryl Myers ran for office before. Gene Atkins ran for office before for the state legislature, I believe. Richard Devlin ran for office before. I don't think Kate Brown is going to get appointed, but we threw it on the, on the, <laughs> as a former. I did, Secretary Ben. State. She has a lot of experience. <laughs> we could put Phil <laughs> Kingsling on that list, maybe too, former Secretary yep. of State. Well, um, I also think that, Ben, you have somebody in the non-placeholder list that I actually think belongs in the placeholder list, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Okay. And then here, there's like a bunch of obstacles. Like, even if you think these are the creme de la creme of placeholder candidates, everyone on that list except for the retired people, is taking a major pay cut. 
like the dash director is a very prominent high profile important yep. job in state government that makes way more than 77,000 a year i just don't think these are i just don't think it's a viable placeholder is really challenging to get the right person you almost need someone like bev clarno or gene atkins who's retired and willing to like come back for a couple more years of service so that's my take on placeholder i don't think it's going to happen so let's move on to the the other list all right ben non placeholders former state legislature and current State Treasurer Tobias Reed, Multnomah County Chair and former State Representative and House Democratic Minority Leader Deb Kafori, former Senate President Peter Courtney, current State Representative Janelle Bynum, current Multnomah County Chair. Oh, I forgot to read Deb Kafori's name is former Multnomah County Chair. Current Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega Peterson, Oregon Speaker of the House Dan Rayfield. Oregon House Majority Leader Julie Fahey, Oregon Senate Majority Leader Kate Lieber, and former candidate for Secretary of State and former state senator, and I think he ran for Congress one time too, maybe? Mark I Hass. I don't think he did. Okay. I do, now that we read the list, I realize what you're saying. It is hilarious that we are implying that Peter Courtney is down for eight years as Secretary of State. <laughs> hey, I think in his heart, he would want to do it for eight years. I'm just not sure he would. Yes, I don't think he would either. He would almost certainly be a placeholder again. And frankly, if Kotek does appoint a placeholder, you might actually put Peter Courtney at the top of the list of contenders. Like the, I agree. He's retired, tons of experience in state government. I love that you're editing the list as if I'm moving him up on the list. <laughs> okay, so let's go through this list a little bit. Tobias Reed has a friend of the pod, I should say. I believe three Absolutely. interviews on the podcast. Listen to all of them. He has expressed interest publicly. He's talked yep. to reporters about this. This is an interesting choice for a couple of reasons. One, Tobias obviously ran against Kotek in the primary. So I think appointing someone who ran against you is kind of a powerful signal of a kind like, you know, I'm appointing the best person for the job. We haven't always got along, but I trust mm -hmm. him. He's been a state agency leader. Transition would be as probably as smooth as you could find of potential candidates out there. Yeah, that, I think that's the case for Tobias. Obviously, the ben, that makes me think of the West Wing when Matt Santos picks Arnold Vinick as his secretary of state. Yeah. Wait, oh, irony, same exact position. I wasn't even thinking about that. But it's like you're picking the person who was like your most recent person that you opposed in the election. And of course, you can't pick a Republican. So it wouldn't be Drazen isn't available to be considered here. But this is kind of this is like very almost bipartisan, like by picking Tobias Reed, because like not that he's a Republican, but that they were opposed in the most recent election. The other interesting thing about this appointment was obviously it would immediately create another appointment. So maybe that would be useful to the governor to appoint someone else. Maybe it would be a headache for the governor that she doesn't want to deal with is going through this whole process another time. What I will say, you will hear from some progressive groups that they do not think it should be, they think it should be a woman or a woman of color appointed to yep. the office. So if you pick Treasurer Reed, maybe you could appoint a more diverse candidate to the treasurer's office. Tons of considerations that would have to right. go into that. So Ben, I'm looking and I we have not had a female state treasurer. We hmm. have only had one state treasurer of color that I can see. It was Jim Hill. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of opportunity to get more diversity in the treasurer's office for the, if that's her goal. So that would be a byproduct. You get a, I think, pretty well-respected secretary of state and you get an appointment to state treasury. You actually kind of get to cement a little bit more of like 
you know, the co-tech administration and the co-tech's like political landscape almost. So for some of these other candidates, I think like every person has their own kind of baggage. Every person in politics has their own like downsides, different people that they don't get along with, different statements they've made publicly that might be controversial, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like one dynamic for all of these folks. What I will say the other dynamic here is, is like there might be people on this list, current office holders, I would say in particular, you could take Jessica Vega Peterson, who has a very important role as Multnomah County chair. You could take Speaker Dan Rayfield, who's got obviously one of the most important figures in the state legislature. And even if Kotek thought one of them was like the best person to be secretary of state and could restore confidence and do an excellent job, one, they have to want to do it. It'd be a big pay cut for the Multnomah County chair. Big pay increase for the state legislative folks, though. Not for the speaker. I believe the not speaker, if makes, speaker makes double, but that's not quite 77. Okay. I doubt that that's the, the <laughs> decision point for these folks in these roles. Also, they probably have side employment. A lot of them have yes. um, another job because legislator is a part-time job. Yes. And again, probably not going to be able to do that if they are serving in the office of secretary of state, given the dynamic yep. that we just went through. But the other piece of this is it might actually be more useful to governor Kotek to have some of these folks in other roles. Like I would say like one of the most important economic challenges facing the state right now is the city of Portland comeback and, you know, like housing and homelessness issues, issues in the metro area. She might want Jessica Vega Peterson to stay in that role so she can be a partner on making progress on something like that. That's really critical to the state rather than moving her to secretary of state's office. So Ben, I think that she should appoint Ted Wheeler so that Portland could get a new mayor. I'm not going to comment on that, <laughs> uh, Reagan. That's a very interesting idea. I just, uh, sorry, I just got that text from Alex Titus. So that that wasn't me. <laughs> I would never say anything like that. That was definitely an Alex Titus thing. What Everyone I will say Alex. is Ted Wheeler was already on this show outline before you mentioned his name, not as a potential candidate, but as a former appointee to statewide office. He was appointed state treasurer back in the day. Uh, we'll oh, get to that in just a moment. I forgot about that, Ben. Yes, that's right. So those are some of the candidates. It's also totally possible that it will be someone not on the list. It could be a business owner. It could be a local elected official or a regional elected official. You know, it could be a mayor. It could oh, be- Oh, Ben, we missed an obvious one that I've been hearing is a rumor. It's Barbara Smith Warner. Oh, yes. That is a name that I've heard too, a few times. And um, I think she would fall in the non-placeholder category. I think she could be a placeholder, but I think she falls in the non-placeholder category. Former House Majority Leader, former state representative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the important thing, one important thing to note is like, any candidate on either list could be a placeholder or not a placeholder. The difference between placeholder and not a placeholder is Kotex says you need to commit to me that you're not going to run for re-election. I think um, that that's the main one. Although some people will take themselves out of the running. Like, I don't think that, I think a lot of people assume most lawmakers like have their plan mapped out, but like, I know a lot of people who decide election to election. Like they yeah. don't, like a lot of people think people are automatic reruns for office. And I just don't think that that's true for everybody. Some people it is, but I don't think everyone's going to make the same process, uh, have the same process when they decide to run or not. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. So those are some names. There's some fodder for folks to think about, consider. There's ben, definitely- I think here's my prediction. I can't pick a name because I feel like that's not effective. I think between, based on what we've seen from Kotech, one, her primary goal is not to pick someone who's a placeholder. It doesn't mean she won't. But she said that's not her primary goal. Her primary goal is someone who restores trust. I think somebody who's currently in the news and has the ability to run for re-election is more likely 
or is incentivized properly to do a good job. One. Second, she said she wasn't in a hurry. Okay. Those two things lead me to believe that she will pick a legislator after the session concludes and signee die. That is my prediction, that she will pick a sitting state legislator because of the information that she's given to the press. Those two pieces of information, that's all the information I have. I'm not deep inside, unfortunately, in the governor's office. I don't have a lot of context there. Uh, they don't talk to me about this stuff for the ones that I do. But that's my prediction, Ben. She will pick a legislator after the session is over. That's a much bolder prediction than I thought you would make on this podcast. So there you go. And so using that as a framework, the only people that I see on this, on the like legislator list being circulated, Dan Rayfield, Kate Lieber, Julie Fahey, and Janelle Bynum. Mm -hmm. Those are the four that I hear. I think there's, I, I'm trying to think who even else would be a potential. I think there's a lot of folks that are like, well, the problem with both legislative chambers, actually, is that they're pretty young. There's a lot of new folks in the House on the Democratic side. And even in the Senate side, there's some folks who didn't serve very long in the House before they became senators. Like, there's still a lot of folks that maybe haven't don't have super long track records. And I don't think you need a super long track record to prove. But like, they're not. Ben, I'm sorry to break this to you. I don't think you're under consideration as a freshman. I think had you already had one term in you, you'd be on the top of the list. But I think that just because you're a freshman, Ben, you've been struck off for completely invalid reasons, honestly. That is just a travesty. And I accept my removal from the list gracefully. Plus, Ben, you'd have to quit the podcast and the listeners just won't have it. That's true. That's the real reason. I'm trying to look up while you're talking. Yeah. Phil well, Keesling. I'll just go through the next segment. So the part of the next segment is about Phil Kiesling. So Phil Kiesling is a former secretary of state who was appointed. I don't think he was in his freshman year, but he was a very young legislator. And I think at the time was considered a surprise pick and then went on to serve for two full terms in the office. So Wikipedia oh, yeah, yeah. says he was so in the he, house. Yeah, he served in the house for two years, 1989 to 91, and then was appointed in January of 1991. So that means... Well, and I don't know. I'd have to check. We'd have to check the election results from that year, but he probably ran for election for the House and won. So he would have not have started his second term yet, but would have won his second term. Yeah, yeah. Based he, on that timeline. That, yeah, it seems like he ran in 88 and won, was finishing his term, had one re-election, and then Barbara Roberts gives him a call and says, I got another idea mm -hmm. for you. Interesting. So final section here before we wrap is yep. just wanted to look back and look at history to see this, see what recent examples in statewide appointments to Secretary of State and Treasurer's Office look like in terms of placeholder versus non-placeholder. And there, Peter Wong wrote this in pamphlet that I found really interesting. Since Bob Straub was governor almost 50 years ago, each of his successors, counting John Kitzhaber twice, has had to make at least one such appointment during their terms. And uh, Ben, I want to clarify this. I think this means... For governors who served eight years, they only had one of these. So not it's not that it's happened every four years. It's that it happened yes. once during our governor's eight-year terms. During our governor's term. Yes, I think that's right. And for some, it happened more than that. So yes. for Kate Brown, obviously, she selected Bev Clarno to replace Dennis Richardson and Jean Atkins to replace herself. Yep. Is that right? Both of them. She selected them. Atkins and then... Richardson won the election against the Democrats that had run in that open seat race. And you were we were talking about this before we started the podcast. Atkins was appointed when people had already filed and declared for secretary of state. And that's the other thing I think makes this interesting is 
if there were already election in full swing, you can make a better case to a placeholder. So you're not putting your thumb on a scale for any particular candidate who's already running and taking that decision away from the voters here. I guess you do technically take the decision away from an open primary. Like you kind of assume for me, I'm not assuming the Republicans going to have like 50, 50 shot at this. They probably have a 25, 75 shot. And so the democratic primary is one of the more important for this. And so you are taking the decision from democratic voters in open primary but you're not taking it in the same way that, that she would have if she had picked a candidate for Atkins. So that's right. And I will say I don't know if that folks were filed yet for office, but people knew Richard Devlin was going to run. People knew Val Hoyle was going to run. The people knew Brad Avakian was going to run. So yep. I think like a placeholder for Secretary of State could have been one of those three. But instead of picking a team, she picked a placeholder. So real quickly, Kitzhaber appoints Bill Bradbury, Secretary of State, after Phil Kiesling left early. Phil Kiesling appointed by Barbara Roberts. Both of those two ran and won twice after they were appointed. Ted Wheeler was appointed, I believe, by Kulangoski for treasurer. He obviously ran and won. And then Tony That Meek was after Ben Westlin passed away. That's right. And then Tony Meeker was appointed by Neil Goldschmidt. Meeker, a Republican, Goldschmidt, a Democrat because I think it was Bill Rutherford took another job. So Meeker was appointed and then he ran again and won. One final thought that I'll offer on this placeholder versus non-placeholder debate before we break and Reagan, I'll see if you have any closing thoughts after this is another dynamic to remember is when was the last time a Republican <laughs> won statewide elected office in Oregon? 2016, Dennis Richardson. It was Dennis Richardson when he was running for secretary of state. Before um, that, it was 2002 U.S. Senate, Gordon Smith. And so I think that is also a dynamic that people are talking about and thinking about is, and who was Dennis Richardson when he, when he won? He was a former legislator who had recently been his party's nominee for governor and had spent a ton of money on TV ads and mailers and all that. So he had relatively high name recognition. The person in today's context who is in a very similar position to where Dennis Richardson was is Christine Drazen. Very high name recognition, just ran a high-profile race for governor, and would be in a position to potentially run for secretary of state. So that is certainly part of the consideration here. I have no sense of whether she would or wouldn't want to run for that office. There's also other Republicans who may be competitive for the seat as well, but that's a dynamic. If you have an incumbent running, they are almost certainly have a better chance of winning than if it's an open seat head-to-head between two candidates. And you can bet that Tina Kotek would not enjoy having her former political rival, Christine Drazen, as a member of the state land board with her, for example. Well, and uh, oh, that's right. We forgot to mention that the secretary of state is a member of the state land board. Good job, Ben. The other thing I think that's interesting about that is if you pick, I'm just gaming this out. I'm going to put my, I've set myself to democratic strategist mode and I'm (laughs) thinking, and I'm saying, okay, look, (laughs) you pick a placeholder. If they screw it up, the new person isn't accountable for it, right? And you know that the Republicans going to run on an anti-corruption thing, right? They're going to say it's time Uh to clean house. It's time we need a check and balance on the Democratic Party, right? We've said this one party rule thing for a long time is going to lead to corruption or does lead to corruption. And this is like one of those signs that we're going to point to Republicans are going to. And we're going to say, look, you need we need balance. It was better when we had Dennis Richardson there. We need a Republican. If you pick a placeholder and they screw it up or even if they don't screw it up, The new person isn't accountable for anything that they do. They get to be their own person. They get to come with their own vision. They have kind of no record. Whereas if you pick someone who isn't a placeholder, if they don't do a good enough job, 
they potentially risk you know, losing that seat where, you know, so like, I think that that makes it a little tougher. I was very pro non-placeholder before, and now I'm actually like starting to reverse my position again, where a placeholder might actually help them electorally and also give you, because the other thing is if you pick a placeholder, that person can be more ruthless, maybe in terms of cleaning up the shop for the next person than someone who's coming in if you've got people. I mean, there's people like there's Molly Woon, who's the elections director. She used to work at the Democratic Party of Oregon. Probably a lot of people have relationships with her, past relationships with her. Maybe they don't want to fire her, right? And so if you have people in positions like that, someone who's just a placeholder, maybe they're not as concerned with that. No, I'm just pitching that as I'm continuing to rack my brain on this, Ben. There's a lot of options. Interesting analysis. There are a lot of options. This is no doubt a really hard decision for the governor to make. And whoever the person may be, you can count on us to invite them on the podcast and them maybe or maybe not saying yes. So look forward to that in weeks ahead. We uh, will release the email of when we invited them. So we that will they not release the email because- uh, Breaking news, Ben. I read that this very, very accurate Tina Kotek account says they are appointing Oregon business fake news to Secretary of State. So that late breaking news. But that actually, Ben, this might be a fake account. Yeah, I think that's a fake account. And buddy, feel free to delete that from the episode. Totally up to you, editor. All right. With that, before we spiral further downward, we will call it a day. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And our plug today is if you're not a subscriber to our YouTube channel, please do so today. Our producer. So Ben, I want to walk people how to do this because I think that it's not not obvious. There's probably going to be links, but let's just say you're listening and you're not going to click on the show notes. I'm going to go to YouTube. I'm going to type in Oregon 360, I think. And if I'm wrong about this, we're going to edit it. Okay, it's just Oregon Bridge, so I'm wrong. But it came up still when I searched for it. There we go. And then right there next to the subscribe, don't even click on our channel, hit the subscribe button and hit the bell. And you'll get a notification when we post new episodes. I really recommend you subscribe to your regular podcast app because I don't like seeing my face, Ben. And if other people don't need to see my face or my wallpaper, I'm good with that. So I recommend you listen to a regular podcast app. But I'm getting on board with promoting our YouTube so that more people can listen to us and then find us and switch to podcast app and get a better experience. And so that Buddy Terry will give you favorable edits because Buddy, our producer, who works incredibly hard behind the scenes, is a big believer in YouTube. So, uh, Buddy, thank you for all your work. Listeners, thank you for listening. And with that, uh, we will see you back here next week. Thanks, everyone.